So welcome everyone. <clears throat> the theme that we're pursuing is uh, looking and fleshing out the fundamentals of Dharma practice and I think that each of you now has a sense that these fundamentals aren't fundamental at all. Although we may have uh, been exposed to them early on uh, and they may have <coughs> formed a certain basis to our practice <coughs> that they're really uh, opportunities to deepen our commitment to practice, our depth of understanding, our wisdom and they really hold the key components to a stability of, of attention and intention and uh, uh, I, uh, and that most of these just haven't been sufficiently explored so that they uh, offer the value that they could offer if we take the time and, and, uh, and spend uh, some real diligent and sincerity with each of these things. I think you'll find that each of them supports your practice in a way that uh, de denies the term fundamental. So uh, <clears throat> tonight we're going to explore sila, uh, ethical conduct, <clears throat> and it's, it's interesting. I uh, have a friend who's a chaplain, and she was mentioning that uh, a group of her chaplain friends were having a training, and that uh, they, many of them have masters in divinity and are well schooled in the ethics of conduct, uh, etc. And they were coming together and having an in-service on ethics. And everyone, or many of them, were uh, complaining that they'd have to sit through an uh, ethical lecture. Uh, and they did, because they felt like they already knew it. They felt like they had received that within their schooling. They knew what was right and wrong, and what else could ethical, an ethical lecture convey? Well, let's just, let's just uh, abolish that thought for this meeting. Uh, and let us start really fresh about what sila means in its depth. It is not a system or a structure that holds us in place. It is a living truth. It has a, vib a vibratory, a living quality to it. Uh, it's a beautiful uh, way of relating. I mean, in fact, it, it defines relationship. Because within relationship, if we are diligent, we can see that we're always bringing forth a value system within that relationship. I like, I don't like, I want to move away. I can open my heart here, I can close it there, I turn away from that. That's all an ethical, has an ethical component to it that I would suggest that is a very much a part of what the Buddha is suggesting when he talks about sila. In fact, he was once asked uh, what is the essence of his teaching and he said the essence of my teaching can be summed up in three words. Sila, Samadhi and Panya. Sila, ethical conduct. Samadhi, we've already had a, 
a talk on that fundamental steadiness of mind, being able to see, and panya, which means wisdom, P-A-N-N-A, Pali word meaning wisdom, which we will have a class on in the future. And so when he says that this is the foundation, this is what all that I teach, he doesn't just mean that it's a set of rules for us to follow, a set of, you know, is this all about uh, everyone is, everyone be good mentality? Uh, no, it's not at all. It invites us in in a depth that few of us are willing to travel because it exposes us to the pain of our life when we do travel it. And so uh, coming into to Sila, the first time we learn in meditation to be aware, to have uh, a moment of mindfulness, that starts a relationship to our ethical conduct, that moment of touching, that brief moment in which that first awareness is acknowledged is, uh, is an access, is a door to our whole relationship and value system to life itself. And it's actually beautiful to see because as we are more willing to expose ourselves and to become more vulnerable, we begin to honor the sense of vulnerability rather than defensiveness. Defensiveness has defined us up until that first touch of awareness. That first touch of awareness draws something out of us that has been hidden for perhaps our whole life. It draws out a quality of nurturance. It draws out a quality of, of a benefit to us that we are surprised by, quite likely, and an orientation to life that we have up until this point denied or at least pretended that we have uh, uh, been um, uh, ignorant of. And so this first brush of awareness uh, begins to associate ourselves with life in a way that we haven't really uh, understood. It's really been in service to myself and what I need our lives ever been about until this first brush. And suddenly there's an opening, a door in which something else gets in, something else is accessible within this uh, new revelation, this new opening. And as this new opening begins to flourish, we begin to really appreciate that sense of being open and being exposed and being raw. Now, what comes out of that is a natural inclination to uh, hold our own life and other forms of life with a different degree of respect and uh, appreciation. And it's not just an automatic uh, self-concerned approach to every living situation, but it has a dynamic that considers what's external and internal within me and not just a reaction to that. And so it invites a connection, it invites a relationship in. And from there on, uh, sila, or ethical conduct, begins to flourish within our hearts. And it begins to really deepen and broaden uh, and steady a relationship to life. So part of what I was talking about uh, last uh, lecture was that staying within ourselves, be being able to really stay within ourselves and get a sense of what life 
is in relationship to ourselves, not an intellectual understanding of life, but what does it really mean to feel life as an experience in myself, in ourselves. And Sila begins to open the doors where that is possible. It also orients us, orients our position in life. We know exactly where we are when, when, there's, when there's that openness, when there is that relationship, when the breeze of life is touching the cheeks of my living, I really get a sense of my orientation to what the experience of life is and a deep sense of humility and gentleness and kindness for that, that touch. So this, this whole opening comes from a different relationship that we now have with life. It's not insular any longer. It never will be for any of you. Any of you. you couldn't go back to what you knew yourselves to be even if you wished to do that. You're far too much, you're far too along on this. And for a long time you don't realize that, but at some point you begin to see that you've changed to such a considerable degree that many of the behaviors that you wouldn't have even considered doing, you would not even um, uh, move towards any longer. And you begin to get a sense, the first, the first indication of that is that where you didn't care whether you hurt people before or not. And you didn't actually ever consider yourself within that, except in a kind of a gross sense. Suddenly, it does matter to you whether you, other people are harmed by what you say in body, speech, and mind. And that's the first indication that some, that opening is beginning to spread out beyond its constraints, beginning to develop into a true relationship with life and letting life in, being affected by life. That kind of porous sense of life coming in and us touching life and appreciating in gratitude and kindness with the expression of life as it comes in, we also give it gratitude and kindness in its external form. So there's this beautiful uh, reciprocity of kindness and gentleness that begins to show itself. And it's not mind-driven, it's not moralistic, it's not, you know, this is what I should be doing. Although it may start out that way, that doesn't last very long. Because within the continuum of how we open our practice, we open our practice from suffering to the end of suffering. That's the continuum through which this, this porous quality opens. So we begin to get a sense that how subtle suffering and struggle is on the left-hand component and how available the end of struggle is on the right-hand component. And the more I uh, restrain myself in moralistic righteousness, the more I am opinionated, the less, the more defensive I am, the less porous I am, the more I suffer. And the less ethical I am within that suffering. You don't ever think that a moral person is ethical. We're talking about something far different than that. A moral person is righteous, but that's very different than what we're talking about. We're talking about a relationship here, a living relationship that breathes, nothing frozen here. This is malleable. This is, this is moving with life as a verb. Ethics is a verb in this sense. It's feeding us as we're being fed and feeding back circuitously. 
And so getting this sense of, of how the continuum of suffering to the end of suffering also follows our moral binding that we put ourselves in. And at first, because you know we want to be right in our meditation, we also want to be right in following the rules of the meditation. So when we hear the precepts that ask us to refrain from, just listen to what the precepts ask of us first. You know, I, I, I think sometimes we miss the invitation of it being organic, of it being a movable feast, of being fed and feeding. Uh, I undertake the practice. No one's expecting anything great from you. This is a practice. We're each beginners within that. Each moment is an opportunity to begin again, to, ref to, to hold this practice uh, to, the, um, to the center of our hearts. So I undertake the practice to refrain from, because we realize that the momentum of our conditioning is to move in terms of our isolation, in terms of our separation. That's what we have for all the years prior to us starting our Dharma practice. Those, that momentum isn't going to go away. It's going to show itself again and again within our speech and body, speech, and mind. And so we have to be diligent in this new relationship. It's very tender. It's like a young plant. And at first, because all we know to do with a young plant is to keep people away and to protect it and to sort of defend it in a kind of egoic manner. We do that with our ethical conduct as well. And we kind of make an assertion, even though we are asked to refrain from and to practice, we make it a demand on ourselves. I will not lie. I will not, I mean, just fill in the blank. And so, Sometimes it's helpful to go back to that continuum and say, is, this, is what I'm doing to myself making me struggle less or struggle more? Is it creating more pain or leading to the end of suffering? And if what I'm doing is actually creating more tension within myself, then quite likely we are using the practice against itself. So we think, okay, I don't know what to do now. It's all confusing. All I know to do is to be moralistic. All I know to do is to, is to make the life into a should and should not. Well, how, I don't know what to do, you see. No, none of us do. We're all in this together. So what we do is what, we allow ourselves to be tender and let the tenderness do itself. See, it's not a lot of things we need to do. We need to develop a relationship to life, as I was mentioning in the last talk, this is a tuning process. This is fine-tuning ourselves to the world and to our body and to our needs and to whatever it is that's arising within us. Fine-tuning ourselves to that so that that fine-tuning process then holds its own posture and position within the world. It holds its own relationship. It holds its own action within the world. It meets life in a very different way than when we don't tune ourselves to to what it is that's going on. When we don't tune, that's a very insulated and a very separate way of looking at life, and our actions come often self-serving and other condemning. And so if we want to live that way, we know how that tune, tuning fork goes. But when we start opening, we don't know what we're opening to. We don't know how much to let in. We don't know if we keep opening in this manner, what happens? Am I going to take the homeless man who 
you know, is outside my door every morning. Am I going to take them home with me? I mean, how, where does this stop? How, how much do I let in? It feels scary to us. It feels tenuous, doesn't it? But once the heart is open, there's only one journey for this thing. It's a journey forward. It's a journey forward. And all the fears that the mind tries to do, coming back to its self-defensiveness, coming back to its closure, coming back to its, uh, its sense of uh, image and uh, self-priority, all of that begins to loosen a little. The knots begin to loosen. And with loose, more loosening knots, we find that we struggle less. Ah, we say to ourselves, it's not quite as burdensome as it used to be. Something must be going right here. Because it feels as if this is a breath of fresh air now touching our cheek. And so we continue. We don't know where we're going. There's always fear and in moving into anything unknown. But we have a sense that it's for our betterment. And that's where this the sense of inspiration comes from. It's organic inspiration. It's a sense of aliveness itself, feeling its own muster, feeling its own worth, feeling its own vitality, and carrying us forward. Carrying us forward as a, as a wave would carry forth a, a, surf, a surfboard. It just pushes it, pushes us right in out. And it never, although there are challenges along the way, it doesn't ever seem to our detriment, not the organism's detriment. And the heart begins to show and, and to get a stability within its journey. It begins to know what it's doing and why. It begins to know why it's being motivated the way it is. It knows itself. And that's because we have now learned how to understand and get a sense of when the motivation is a little off. We notice the tendencies to contract around ourselves, to act from selfish motivations, and we're aware of the motivations that are arising within us. And when those motivations aren't, aren't uh, operating in the same way, and we allow ourselves to be a little more porous, a little more interactive within life, we find that the journey, the expression that we have within life is one of connectedness, of kindness. That's just the way it goes. We don't have to practice kindness. All we have to do is let life in to be kind. Right? You understand that? Life does it all. Life tenderizes us. Right? If we do it the other way, if we try to tenderize ourselves to life, we're never letting life in, we're just preparing for it the whole time, aren't we? Right? I gotta be more kind. I'm not good enough yet. You're not good enough for what? To live this moment? You're not good enough to live this moment? Just sit back and allow it in. And it becomes so obvious how this movement, how this, how this, the wave of life moves us forward in a very clear way. And what we find is that we have the ground under our feet, the positionality. It's not an egoic positionality. It's not an egoic image I'm speaking about now. But you know where you are when you're not defended. 
When you're defended, you don't know where you are because you're defending yourself against what you are. You're defending yourself against the, the possibilities of threat. But when, you're, when you lay down your arms, become unprotected for a moment, and the other side of that is that you're able to deal with the pains that life brings your way because you feel more confident and be able to hold your own psyche without recoiling in fear of pain, then you can drop your guard from both angles. What if I drop my guard and somebody says something to me? So what? The less guarded I am, the less defended I am, the more it doesn't matter what comes at me in terms of my own ability and preparedness to be able to handle it and to manage it. And I know, my, I know exactly what this is about. You see, I don't have to turn around and question it. Like, I'm in, within myself. And I'm not looking out neurotically for some reason to be myself or to change myself. It doesn't make any sense to do that at some point. When you have arrived in the moment, there's nothing you have to do to better yourself within that moment, except open yourself to the moment. And when that, there's a threshold when you begin to really see that. And so you're not worried about what they're thinking about you or what you forgot to say or all the remorse that you're bringing in. And this is the first time, perhaps, when we're truly self-forgiving. Because you're not looking around at what you've done in your past to try to defend it. And so a lot of neurosis that we all have within ourselves begins to, just begins to thin and lighten its load. And we begin to see that that is moving from tension to tensionless, from struggle to non-struggle, from suffering to the end of suffering. And we begin to, oh gosh, it's just, it's just a matter of kind of dropping our guard. <clears throat> and the reason we haven't is because we felt unprotected. But when we realize that what does it mean to be unprotected it means you let life in, the alternative is that you keep life out, which is no alternative at all. And when you let life in, and it comes in, you're able to manage it. And you also have the ability to discern and see what it is that's coming at you. So it's not like you're caught off guard or something hits you up the side of your head. You're able to see, oh, you can see someone who has, is manipulative long before they manipulate. You get it, you get a sense. And so you just, that discerning quality is not available to a protected, when we're self-protected, when we're so defended that we're all so in our isolated position because that isn't discernment. That's using your own fear to decide what you want to do, and that's not discernment at all. So this, this I, I don't know, you know, it, it's just this tuning ourselves, staying within ourselves. That's why it was such an important talk last time, I think. And this just builds on that. Start wherever we are with, with ethical conduct. It doesn't, we don't have to be into some absolute or to some 
idealism. And just as morality and the should, the hard should of an egoic uh, sense of morality starts uh, is the beginning of our practice, so too there's a pitfall as the heart begins to open and you feel the tenderization of life affecting you. Then it becomes idealized, romanticized. I don't ever want to hurt anything we say in a soft and gentle voice. I never want to lie. I know, it's a different tone, isn't it? But it's just as trapping as the other moralistic tone. This is all gray. There's no black and white here. We take a step and fall, right? So this sense of idealization, of, of wanting to protect the tender quality of the moment, never hurting anything. Many people who come out of retreats uh, have that false direction. It's not wrong, it just isn't possible, right? So you start thinking, oh, you know, I never want to hurt anything. And to the extreme, what does that mean? You never want to hurt anything. You don't breathe in because bacteria come in, right? So you're dead. But the fact is that life lives on life. Life lives on life. So there's no way to live. So the whole, all the precepts are grayer. That's what I mean. There's no structure here. It's a relationship. It's an ongoing it's an ongoing tuning into the moment. That's what, the, what is needed in this moment is not some, something the Buddha said. It's what comes in the heartfelt tenderness of our relationship with the moment. And sometimes that heartfelt tenderness is a yes and sometimes it is a no. Right? So I, I, was, um, I teach it the Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts. So about uh, 15 or 20 years ago, I was teaching there and, and uh, they have these uh, condiments and things that are out all the time for people to put uh, honey in their tea and there's uh, molasses and all those different things just out all the time, 24 hours. But there are cockroaches everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. There are cockroaches. And I said, this is disgusting. Is anybody else disgusted with this? We're not going to kill the cockroaches. Okay. All right. So this went on and on. And you don't go in and try to tell people that they need to, to change their precept a little bit. But, but <laughs> over, over time, it becomes obvious, right, you know, that you... You look down in your tea and there's a cockroach floating oh. away. It's awful. I mean, it was really, and they're all in the walls. So, you know, the staff was, you know, a, a half the staff, we're not going to hurt cockroaches. <laughs> the other half the staff is, this is disgusting. So they, they did whatever they needed to do and there aren't any more cockroaches there. But it took this kind of inward battle, this inward tension between the two fac factions. And those two factions are well represented within us because we idealize what the Dharma is. This is not a, it's not ideal. This is no heaven on earth we're making. This is gray. You know, you have a rat in your house. What are you going to do? Or termites. Okay, I, let me pause and consider. Okay, now get on the phone and call the exterminator. 
<laughs> I paused, all right? <laughs> That's good enough. <laughs> but what you do find is that when you do pause and you do open up and become porous, because you're letting life in in that pause, you're considering. That's what I loved about the E.E. Uh, e. Cummings poem I read. You know, it's like spring, you know, and in that joy of spring, he also sees what spring is not, you know, what, what the loving and the giving and the sharing and the, and the other side of that, you see. And, so, and the, the, the mountains dancing and then the darkness. And so uh, you see very clearly both sides of the issue in this. And, and so it's like, okay, so um, you, let me do the, I'll pause and let life come in and then do the best I can with this. You know, I can't live with rats or whatever it is. So I'll take that step and I'll just deal with whatever is the necessary next step for that. So it's not, I mean, and each of us are going to decide something differently and each of us are going to apply different methodologies and but basically we're considering it. We're letting life in, we're pausing, and just, we're not reacting. In reaction, there's no pausing. And what we realize is that we can't be uh, brutal and porous at the same time. If you pause, you really consider what you're about to do to whatever it is you're about to do it to. You consider that. You let the information in. It's not just a self-referenced act. And so that relationship, that porous relationship, was what they then begins to guide us. It begins to guide the path. And so it's not like, I will never kill a rat. It's like, let me, what's the situation here? And can I manage this? And how to, how to do this so that it has some dignity to it? perhaps. And so it's, a, it's so important to understand that this is not, that there's no road map here. It's not like turn right at every rat that comes into your house and then take a quick left. It's like, if there's no, this is all, each one of us in the configuration of our moment as it's expressing itself and being as porous and as open as possible. And knowing ourselves so well that we realize the motivation, the counter tendencies we have in us, and we know our place exactly where we are, we know what's going on in us, and we make the decision from that, and that's that. And then we move on. Oh, how could I have killed a rat? How could I have killed a cockroach? In Houston, we had cockroaches that were <laughs> so I lived there, right? And I lived on the third floor of a building. And so for a long time, I was taking these damn cockroaches outside by going down three flights and throwing out a cockroach, coming back up, and there were another 500 of them. So then someone told me that, this is an aside, someone told me that the cockroach lived when you flushed the toilet, could live through the flushing. So man, those cockroaches. <laughs> I never know if it was true or not, but it was good enough for me. <laughs> so what is, 
happens. So to understand why we harm, you see? Why do we harm? What is it that, what is it, when you really want to know and have to be, to have the practice fully integrated in yourself and to tune into yourself, that tuning, part of the question of the tuning process is, why do I need to harm? What's the, what goes on in me that leads to harm? And you have to, we have to explore that. We have to see what it is that goes on. It's often image protecting or it's often fear. It's always fear. Fear of that what, what this thing would do to me if I didn't do something to it first. And you begin to, once that's sorted out in your psyche and you see, well, wait a second here, let's look at this differently. Then the thing begins to flow in a way that life has always meant to flow but was getting stopped because of our confusion about our own self-knowledge. We didn't know what was there. We didn't know why we were doing what we were doing. So sila has a tremendous impact on us and it's, it's really the basis of relationship, all relationship. In fact, we have spent a, a number of weeks at some point in over the years on the precepts and looking at the refined nature of what the precepts are. So and when you say you're not going to uh, say any uh, distortion of a fact verbally, which is one of the precepts to refrain from distorting speech, what does that mean? Does that mean just not lying? Or does it mean the very thoughts you're thinking and whether they're distorting thoughts? You see how subtle this gets? That's a relationship we have to our thoughts that we need to, that Sila is asking for us to explore. And what you'll find is that thoughts, by their very nature, don't hold the truth, can't hold the complete truth, because they're an opinion or perception of, of something. They're not a complete story of it. And so you begin to see when you follow your narrative in particular, you're following your course and action, your perception, and you're not really considering anything other than your particular perception within that event. And you go, is that true? Could, is that the way to live? Is that the way for life to live itself? So that, that's an example of how seal, or here's one, you know, we undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given, the second precept. So adding not, not adding anything to the moment, taking life as it's given. All right? So what's the definition of suffering is adding something to life that is not given. I don't like it this way. See? It's too hot in this room. What's given? And what do I want? Now you're now we're being brought in to the now you're being brought into life itself. How are you being brought into life? Through sila, through relationship, through understanding how what we do in relationship to life is to disconnect, not connect, and that our path, our journey is one of connectedness, of letting it in to inform us and not holding ourselves in abeyance to life and informing it 
about what we need. It's a relationship shift where we are the dominant party from where we are the dominant party to where we are receiving life in the way that it is. And the precepts can take us in that journey. They're not just a gross commandments. They never were meant to be that way and they don't, and they're terribly misunderstood in that sense. And you can see why they're a fundamental in practice. How can this not be a fundamental? Isn't relationship something that happens to you every moment? In fact, it's impossible for you not to be in relationship moment after moment. And therefore, there is an ethical quality to what is happening every single moment of your life. And are you bringing that sense of wonder and mystery and investigation into that so that you can make yourself more porous, allow life in to affect you more and more? Or are you holding on to your precepts in some kind of predetermined way? I will never. I must always. So the, the point of Sila, it does many things to us, and I just want to go through just a few of them in the time left. Through. The first thing it does is it directs us towards that connection and love. It sets us up so that we really allow ourselves to be touched now in ways that we were afraid to be touched before. It's an invitation, it's an invitation to let our, cell, our guard down. It's an invitation for us to join. Instead of holding ourselves in some kind of fixed way. Now, you have to understand that the mind is never going to let you unfix. So if you're going to use that organ as your predominant organ in practice, then you're going to be moralistic, you're going to be self-righteous, you're going to be condemning, you're going to be pleasure-seeking, because that's what the mind does. This is an organ shift. And sila is dropping us into that organ so that we can shift into that gear. It is not a mental framework, and I can't say that strongly enough. If you operate it from the mind, then you'll stay in the mind because it will never let you out. It's a closed system. But when you journey into the heart, then you're going to journey into the nuances of life. It's not going to look black and white. It's going to look black and white mentally. Nothing looks black and white from the heart. So the sense of connectedness is always, you know, it's a challenge. There's a challenge here. It keeps us very alive and very discerning as to how to work with the moment, how, what to do, do how, what's appropriate in this moment, what's appropriate to do. The second thing it does, and I don't want to gloss over this at all, is it makes life a lot easier to be ethical, a lot easier. You simply don't have to worry about being discovered, right? And it makes things, it smooths out, it just makes it more relaxed, there's less tension. You know, you just are what you say you are. You simply live what you say you live. I mean, you just live in accordance with what you, the statement of what you want to say about yourself. There's no discordance there. I mean, what, what you see is what you get, basically. 
I don't like him. Great, I don't, that's fine. Do you see him sneaking around? You won't say that. You see? I don't know why many uh, people miss that point of just the ease. If you want your life to be easier, and I hope that sense of simplicity, intentionless living becomes something that you develop a taste for, then there's only one true way towards it. It's to live with integrity and honesty and straightforward, do what you say you're going to do and drop your guard. And as I mentioned, it limits paranoia. I don't, what do you have to defend? If you, you may be accused, you did something, okay. I, like, okay, I didn't do it. No, you did do it. Okay, well, you have 20 years in jail. Okay, 20 years in jail. What are you going to do? You go to jail for 20 years. You didn't do it, though. That's the fact. You don't, you don't, there's nothing, there's no explanation needed. And I'm being, I'm exaggerating the point because many times you'll see our defenses arise in accordance to what we have been in the past. And if we have been a deceptive in the past, even though you're not deceptive now, you'll find that defense mechanism kick in and you have to explain yourself and explain yourself and explain yourself. And furthermore, I wouldn't have, why would I have done, you see, when all that, it, somehow all that is needless at some point. You go, okay, I, that's what I did when I was young. My mother, we were five kids, and she would line us up when something, a cookie was missing. Did you take it? No, I didn't take it. Did you take it? I didn't take it. Did you take it? Nope. <laughs> sometimes I did and said no. Sometimes I didn't and said no. But somehow I was usually blamed because I was so defensive about it. So you get, you get, there's a relaxed quality that comes in. Say, no, I didn't. That's that. And I don't know, I just, I hope that you hear the point I'm trying to make is that it's just a relaxed life you can have. It doesn't have to be like this. And you know, it, it allows the past to be seen as the past. When you're defending yourself about the past because of what you did in the past, you're not allowing the past to be the past. But if you can be completely, feel completely relaxed within the present because you're not creating harm and you're living a life with integrity, then, well, the past is going to catch up with you quite likely. 20 years ago, you did this to me. But then you handle it with integrity, saying you're sorry, whatever the humility would allow. But you don't, the past doesn't rule you anymore. And it doesn't take a long time when integrity kicks in so that the past is something you deal with, but it doesn't rule you. It rules us when we're in a tension relationship because we are ongoing, uh, we're ongoingly distorting what life is bringing forward. That tension within that distortion keeps us from relaxing to our past. Believe me, people, we're not going to get far in meditation if we aren't relaxed to our past. 
You're not even going to know the past is the past. And for God's sake, that is the essence of meditation. To discern the difference between the present and what has been. But an unethical life doesn't allow that. We're always afraid of what is going to pop out at us because of what we've done. So I'm, you're, you're hearing now that this is an essential quality, not an add-on here. I mean, we love to just go to the meditation. Uh, just give me the meditation. That's where it's really at, right? And the sila, well, you know. no. No, that's false meditation. This is bringing whole body and mind, whole life, whole life. This is a whole life adventure, a whole life journey. We're bringing the whole life to meet reality. Everything. It's not just a, it's not a laser beam focused meditation retreat. And I'm, you know, 20 years from now, I'll look up and everything will be beautiful. It's a whole life adventure. And we offer the gift of non-harm. That's a gift that keeps on giving. You say, here I am on, in life, and you know what? I'm not going to harm you. You don't say it verbally, but in presence, people feel safe with you. You feel safe with some people. You feel like, oh, wow. I just, you ever had somebody that you actually felt safe around? Oh, whoa, this is amazing. You know, you, like, you can say things to him, or him or her, that you weren't able to say to other people. It's like a flushing. You know they're not going to try to harm you or hurt you. They're not going to use what you say against you. They're not going to, behind your back, gossip about it. It ends there. And there's this beautiful, relaxed quality of relationship. Within such a, with such a person. And so we carry that gift with ourselves, within ourselves. Oh, this is a good one. Acts as a safeguard for exploring a state of mind. Now this is, see these things aren't usually, so let me explain what that means. Like, you know, we are often exploring very difficult states of mind in ourselves, like anger or lust or something like that. But if you're not uh, ethical, you're afraid that those states of mind will compel you to action. So you're not going to really explore them. You're going to defend yourself against them so that you can keep them kind of buffered so that they don't affect you the way you're afraid they will. But if you're ethical, bring it on. Because you know just feeling it isn't going to make you act any other way. And so you can really explore it, not feign an exploration. And that's a tremendous benefit. These are tremendous benefits in your psyche for stabilizing yourself, for feeling a complete willingness without boundaries, without limits, to look at everything Explore each thing. 
And may I say it helps in understanding selflessness. Because if you haven't heard the humility that's necessary for us to be honest, straightforward, integritous, if you haven't felt what that means, what that would call forth from you to be porous, that is selflessness. So it moves us naturally towards that disposition. I wish it for you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? Just being honest with the way you sit, you see. Honest with what's arising. Honest about what you're saying to what's arising. Requires us not to distort the moment by pretending it to be other. Or not denying anything within the moment so you can hear how this Sila works on the momentum of the other fundamentals that we've already spoken about. And yet you also feel in yourself quite likely some spark about it. Something that says yes to you. That comes out as a confirmation. You know, this is with the intention, this is the way I want to be. And then you have to look at the culture and all the ways it reduces us back to our own internal needs and selfishness. Okay, so we have to be even stronger than the cultural imperatives. Okay, y'all. So. So so I was concerned about bringing this title up because I was afraid all of you wouldn't come. You think, oh, I know about that, like the hospice, the chaplain group. Says, oh, I'm why do I attend an electron? See, I know. Five precepts: don't kill, don't 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 don't. No, it's a do. 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 So, questions or comments about anything tonight? Yes. Yes. A person gets what? Accused, yes. Right, goes to jail. What? That was extreme. Yes, yes. No, no. The question is concerning uh, the example I gave of being accused and 
You say you didn't do it. The point is not that you don't defend yourself. You do defend yourself. You get the best lawyer you can <laughs> to make your case, of course. But you, in your heart, it's in your heart, you see? It's in your heart you know you didn't do it. You didn't do it. It's not like, did he do it or not? You know, he didn't do it. He says he didn't do it, he didn't do it. You just know it's that level of being that won't, that cannot distort. And so there's no, so the consequences of whatever happens to you is less important to than the integrity of that alignment. So in the extreme case where you go to prison after a long elaborate trial and then you, but in prison you just, you still didn't do it. And you aren't trying to, you know, it's not like. And you live from that. You live from not doing, having done. You don't, it's not a protective kind of, it's not, you just live from not having done it. Everybody thinks you did, and you know you didn't, and you live that way. And they recoil from you, but you don't recoil from anything. Because you live with that. You know, there, uh, I was reading about the uh, Native Americans. And uh, there were uh, groups of Native Americans that simply had no, that the sense of distorting the truth was not a part of that culture. It just, there wasn't any reference. They, so when someone said, I did it, or I didn't do it, that was it. There was no, well, let me, let me talk, let me build a case against you. You know, it was exactly what the fact was. And that was, that was encultured. So nobody did it. Isn't that amazing? You know, there were moments when I was a monk where, I mean, people lived that way. You know, they would not distort the truth. They wouldn't take things that weren't theirs. You could leave your billfold in the middle of a path and it would be there when you next journeyed on that path. And when someone said this, then you knew that that was what it was. And it was a culture, it was a subculture. And you wonder, wow, I mean, this is very alluring. I'd just like to live like this just because it's so refreshing to live like this. We can live like this. It isn't even that hard. It's that hard only because we try to protect our image they get sidetracked with what the culture says our image should be. But if we're stronger than the cultural model, what difference does it make? Yes. Maybe a what? Maybe easier and le like it's all better in some, some things. If, you're, if you let yourself be open, it's going to hurt. Well, uh, the question is, you know, when you switch to a heart-centered life, 
that it's going to hurt. And uh, it's going to hurt whenever you're affected by life, rather than trying to keep life out, you're going to feel the pains of life. But you, uh, are, your, your consciousness gets, develops the capacity to hold the pains of life. So you do feel the pain. You feel, I, 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 something happened today where I, I just uh, started weeping over practically nothing that anybody on the street wouldn't weep about. But some, I can't even remember it, but that kind of thing happens a lot. But it, I don't know, it, to me it's like, do I want to go back? <laughs> do I want to get insulated again? No, it's like this is, there's something beautiful in that tenderness. It's like uh, grief. When people are grieving, yes, it's hurting. Yes, it hurts, but there's a tender quality to it. There's something that, there's some way that there's an access that makes it all worthwhile. And that's what I mean by the beauty of it, even as the pain of it comes in. No, pain does not distort the truth. The pain is what is occurring. That's part of what you accommodate. It does not distort it. Only thing that distorts it is when you say something in your narrative about how the pain shouldn't be there, or how I want to avoid that pain, or how he, sh he shouldn't have done that, or he shouldn't have died, or that's, then you're in pain, then you are in more contracted, then when you let life in, it's just the fact of how it gets in. And it just, it rubs, and it sometimes feels like an abrasion. But the alternative, I, you know, I don't know how to, all of you have felt the tenderness of a heart, haven't you? Now you want to go back and never feel that again? It hurt, though. Not in a contracted, suffering way, but there was still trepidation, there was still timidity, quite likely. And there was still uh, a lot of emotional feeling. Tenderness is very uh, emotionally raw. But that's different than the, the kind of pain that contracts back into itself. So it's a different kind of pain. It's not suffering pain. It's exposure. And exposure isn't suffering in this case. Yes? Um, aren't the precepts um, kind of guidelines in our lives that can show us what the trappings of suffering are? Like that if we harm or that if we hate or if we don't speak kindly, then we will fit into suffering inside of our being because we're cultivating that openness and it seems to me that, that there is a certain way that we hit up against suffering in our lives from our own delusion and ignorance and greed. And, and it's so painful when we find ourselves hit into that suffering because we just do in relationships and in our relationship with the world. And we become more aware of it as we, our practice continues to deepen, I think. And it's like learning how to touch that suffering somehow getting sucked into the pitfalls of the suffering. And I wonder how the precepts can help us. You know, like, sometimes when I'm harmed, I feel so bad about it, and I want to rescue the person, and I want to make everything better, and it's like, I can't, because 
Okay, I, I got it. I got it. So uh, the question is uh, just the range, really it's the range of understanding of how the precepts work. And I would just suggest that if it's working for you in that direction, then for you, and it's working for you successfully, then for you to continue in that direction. And I would suggest that you just watch any, um, any uh, conclusion or any sense of righteousness about how you should act and whether that is alleviating suffering or creating more tension for yourself. So that's, that's to see if the very way you're using precepts is creating more tension or it's creating more lightness of heart, right? And that will guide you. If you're willing to do that and to perceive that with sensitivity, then that will be, that's like a, a guidance, like a braille. Like, oh, oh, I see, oh, this way, okay, like that. And that will be ultimately lead you into a, a, a more clear understanding of how the precepts are to be used for you, and that'll take you to the next step. And we just keep doing that all along the way. Okay, so we have to stop for this evening. <clears throat> I want to thank you all for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.